We'll see how that goes. I feel like my children balancing cups on the end of the table and you just know what's going to happen. Don't do it. Don't. Okay, it's going down here. But then I kick my feet under there. We'll see how it goes. All right. Open your Bibles with me, church. We're going to get right into it. I got a lot to say today, so we are not going to mess around. Here we go. Luke chapter 10, or jump on, on the Bible app with us. Luke chapter 10. So we are in the series, The Road. Jesus and his disciples are literally on the road to Jerusalem. We're in Luke chapter 10. As a matter of fact, in verse 38, it literally says, as they continued along the road to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the triumphal entry, to Passion Week, and ultimately the cross. So he is on his way there, and on his way, Jesus is challenged by a religious expert in the law. And uh, you don't need to go there quite yet, yeah. Uh, and, and his response to this uh, question that this person brings him is probably one of the best known stories or parables that Jesus told. Um, the Gospel of Luke is unique in that it has uh, several stories that aren't mentioned in any of the other Gospels. It has the story of the ten lepers. It has the story, uh, I said lepers, it almost sounded like leopards there for a second. That would be a cool story too. But this is the story of the ten lepers, the parable of the prodigal son, the story of Zacchaeus, and the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is what we're going to be looking at today. And as I said, this is probably one of the best-known parables um, that's out there. I was tempted, actually, to find a different moment in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem because everyone knows this story. Everyone knows the story of the Good Samaritan, whether you were raised in church since you were, you know, but, but a tiny baby, or this is your first time stepping in the door, you've probably heard of it because, you know— it's just so clear and evident what the point seems to be, right? It, it means we, when it's a compliment if you call someone a good Samaritan. You know, I, I, I had a flat tire, but a good Samaritan came along and helped out. There's even, there's even a, 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 a group of people called the Good Sam Club that's like for RVers, right? And that's short for Good Samaritan Club. It's, so it's, it's like everyone knows what a Samaritan is. It's, you know, it's, it's so obvious to everybody, but... While people are familiar with the story, I don't think they're necessarily aware of the point of the story. You see, in the same chapter, right before Jesus tells this parable, in the same chapter, Jesus says this, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. So Jesus I think we've got some pads playing through. I just want to, if we could mute the keys or something like that. I'm not sure what it is. I just hear some very soft humming. So Jesus uh, sees that, uh, that, that, that uh, he's telling these parables and he says, there's people that think themselves very wise and clever. They're kind of Sherlock Holmes and they're like, we can figure this out. And he says, actually, people that think themselves very wise aren't going to get this. It's the childlike that understand it. And so for those that don't see it or are blinded to the kingdom, Jesus what Jesus is talking about, this seems like a very, the world kind of flattens this parable out into a story about kindness. They kind of flattens it out to, we need to be nice to people or about being about social justice. And let me tell you, both of those are very good things. Don't get me wrong. They're very good things, but it's not the point of what Jesus was driving at. So we're going to take a look at this. Actually, I, as I studied, I decided we're going to do this verse by verse 
and we're going to go through and, and look at the background and see what the purpose of Jesus's parable was actually about, okay? So starting in verse 25 with me, we'll start there. So it says this, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus was tested by this expert. Some translations call him a lawyer. Now, he was not the lawyer that we think of when we think of lawyers. We think of the lawyers that they get the jokes made about them all the time and are in courtrooms, right? And it's like the legal law. This lawyer was someone who, who studied and knew religious law. To the Jews, religious law is up here. The rest of the law is way down here. And if it falls within Jewish law, that's great. But religious law, the law of Moses, is the ultimate law. They, they literally went through, you know, you think, you know, it's bad news if, you know, the pastor has to talk to you about something. If you were in trouble with their version of the church, they could even have you killed. So, so their religious law had a lot of power. It was a very held in very high regard. And so um, he was a lawyer of this law. He studied the Torah law, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch of their scripture. And this was his business. It was his job. And so... Um, in the study I did, it, I, it came to be, I kind of came to realize this was a common question. It was actually a matter of debate among, the, among theologians and clerics was, what does it take to have eternal life? The reason they would ask this question was, there were a lot of laws in those first five books, 613 of them. And they knew that no human being could possibly follow every single one of those laws every day of their life. And so they tried to distill it down to what does it take to actually have eternal life? And they would have debates and questions about it. And so he brought this to Jesus. This was his test. What's the most important? And Jesus responds with a question himself. This is also a debate tactic was, I hear your question. I respond with a question. And uh, so Jesus hears his question and he responds by saying, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? He says, you're the expert here. You're the guy that studies this professionally. What do you see? Well, how do you read it? And the man answers, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. So he responds with what we know as the great commandment. This was a wise reply. It was a, actually a combination of two verses from the Old Testament. It was, it was Deuteronomy 6.5 and something from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. And so he tied these two scriptures together, and it's the same, a very similar response that Jesus gave someone that asked him in Mark chapter 12 about the greatest commandment. And Jesus says to him, right, do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is our third question in this conversation. And who is my neighbor? So there's something in Jesus' response here that made the lawyer feel like he had lost face. It said he needed to justify himself. Perhaps it was that Jesus sent the line of questioning right back to him. He like keeps returning volley, and, uh, and, and, or maybe it was the inference that Jesus made that he wasn't following all the laws by saying you need to follow all these laws and then you'll have eternal life and the assumption that he wasn't. And so he felt like he was somehow, uh, he had lost faith that he needed to defend himself. So he returns this response of, and who is my neighbor? See, the Jewish definition of neighbor was actually very narrow. A neighbor was not just the person that lived next door. It was not just, you know, humanity in general. A neighbor was a Jew. And it was a very righteous Jew. It was one that was often of the same sect 
Like if you were a Pharisee, they were a Pharisee. If you were a Sadducee, you were a Sadducee. That you that makes you a neighbor. When you have the same exact uh, belief system and and structure of life and priorities and heritage, neighbor. Everyone else, nah. And so and so he 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 asks, so who is this neighbor? And so here's Jesus' response. Rather than defining it, he tells a story. Because Jesus loves to tell stories. They stick in our brain. They stick in our mind. I remember stories a lot better than I can memorize big sections of things. If someone tells me a story, I can rehash it back to you, right? So Jesus tells this story. He says this. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. So the journey to give us an idea of what's going on here, the landscape, the journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He says traveling down. You see, the elevation change between Jerusalem and Jericho is 3,300 feet. And Jerusalem's way up high, above sea level. Jericho's actually about 700 feet below sea level. And the distance between is only about 17 miles. So you are dropping a tremendous amount of elevation as you go down to Jericho. And uh, as a matter of fact, this road is very windy. It has switchback roads and dramatic drop-offs into ravines. Perhaps some of you who've been to the Holy Land have done that road, and I've heard it's harrowing in a bus because they are pin turns that you're taking as you go down into this uh, ravine, these ravines to get there. And uh, Jericho itself was known as an oasis city. It was uh, the vacation place of the rich and powerful. You got Jerusalem up high and the winter gets colder, but you've got down here Jericho, it's warm. It's known as the City of Palms. And so you've got people like Herod the Great. He built a, a, a winter palace down there to, to vacation in when he would be, you know, away for to get away from the cold. Um, even the priests, when they're not on temple duty, would often stay down in Jericho. Um, and so uh, the rich and powerful would travel there, all these different people. And, uh, and, and so it's kind of the Palm Springs, Prescott, Arizona of, of the Holy Land. You know, they just, the snowbirds head down there. But because the rich and powerful would travel there, that meant that a lot of uh, traders and people that would be doing business would be traveling. And because of the switchback roads and all the boulders and rocks and how mountain it is, as a matter of fact, I've got a picture here. This is a, uh, a monastery that's been built right into the rock of this path. And um, if you look here, this is, this, this is near a pass that's called a dome. And a dome is uh, Hebrew for the blood pass. Or, or the Red Pass, and, and it was a violent area. There were bandits that would live in the rocks and pop out, and it wasn't like Robin Hood and his merry men. It was like, we are going to kill you and take your stuff. And so they would, they would rob the, the rich people as they traveled through. They would, they would kind of live uh, uh, in the land there. And so this was a very dangerous pass, and so the bandits would lie in wait. They'd attacked this man, and they beat him up, and they, as far as they were concerned, they left him for dead. They were done with him. They even took his clothes. They took everything, and uh, he's laying there naked, exposed, vulnerable to the elements, and if no one comes along, he's a goner. He's not going to crawl his way back. He is a goner, and he's just laying there, but lucky for him, someone does come along. So we continue on in the story. It says, by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So a priest and a temple assistant, which is called a Levite in the Bible, see him. And these were men of the cloth. These were 
pastors. These were uh, the, the, the righteous men. And they, of, of all people, should have been the people that were extended mercy, but they passed by him. And there's speculation about in the story, why would they have passed this guy by? Um, perhaps they were on important church business. They had to get to the temple or they had to get somewhere to help someone. Or perhaps they were concerned that those same bandits could not be far away. That would be perhaps on my mind. Like, I don't want that to happen to me. So they kept scooting along. But it's of note that they didn't just pass by, but they gave wide clearance. They didn't discontinue on their way, but Jesus made a point to say they went on the other side of the road. They couldn't tell if this guy was dead or alive. And this is an important part because by their law, by the law of Moses, remember the law is the ultimate law. These men were not permitted to come into contact with a dead body. In the book of Leviticus chapter 21, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die except for a close relative such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother. When I have studied this in the past and read about this, I had heard that if a priest came into contact with a dead body, he was unclean for a period of time, about a week. But that's not what the law said. The law literally said he is never to do it. To touch a dead body would be breaking God's law. And so he sees this dead body, and actually, as a matter of fact, according to Jewish tradition, these men were so righteous that if so much as their shadow fell across the body of a dead person, they contracted impurity. So it wasn't just like, don't touch. It was like, don't even let your shadow touch. And so by touching a dead body, these men would not just be ceremonially unclean for a week. They would be breaking the law. The religious lawyer would have understood when Jesus is responding with this story to the religious lawyer and he's hearing this, he would have understood this at a different level. He would have understood the point of conflict that's happening in Jesus' story. The priest and the Levite were met with a dilemma as they passed by. Do I obey the law of God or do I take a risk and show mercy to this man who may possibly be alive And so they're brought to a point of conflict. Do I do good or do I obey the law? And it's it's an interesting parallel to when Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath day. Do you remember this story? And he comes under heavy criticism because you're doing stuff on the Sabbath. You're supposed to be on your Barca lounger watching football. And he says, who of you, if you had an ox or a sheep fall in a pit, wouldn't pull it out of the pit on on the Sabbath day? Who says you can't do good on the Sabbath? He's, he said, so, so they're kind of brought to the same point of question. So these two men who are considered paragons of religious and ethical righteousness are brought to this point of decision. They're the standard. And, and Jesus is at this point in the story. And when he's at this point, I don't think they're seeing so much as the bad guys for walking by. I think they go, well, what choice did they have? What more could they do? You see, they're the heel of our story now when we read it. But to hear it in their ears, they would have gone, that's a, that's a tough situation. But for these two individuals, they saw this broken man. They saw him. But their relationship with him ended there. And they moved forward. Then the story takes a turn. This is a turning point in the story right here. Verse 33. Then... A despised Samaritan came along. 
and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins or two denarius, telling him, Take care of this man, and if his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. So we just jumped from these two characters that walked into our story that were the cultural heroes. These are the people, you ask your kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, not an astronaut. I want to be a Levite. I want to be a Pharisee. That's their heroes. Went from the two heroes to the natural born enemy. This was, this was, uh, uh, we had talked about this in previous weeks about how Samaritans were, were so reviled. They were the transplanted uh, people that were considered half-breeds. When, when the people of Israel were taken into captivity, uh, some of the remaining people uh, connected with other people of the land and had children, and they were not true Jews. And they, they, they uh, twisted the religion of the Jews, and the Jews hated them. And as a matter of fact, they hated the Jews in return. It went both ways. Um, and when the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon, they came back to start rebuilding the temple. And do you know what group of people were just a thorn in their side the whole time they were trying to rebuild the temple? The Samaritans. They would actually go take dead pigs and throw them on the temple building area to defile it so that it would delay the building time. They would have to go and re-sanctify and re-cleanse the area. And it was a frustration for the Jews. They hated them. And as a matter of fact, in the year 126 B.C., the Jews decided, we don't like the Samaritans so much, we'll attack them. So they went into Samaria, attacked the Samaritans, and destroyed their temple. So this was a generations upon generations upon generations of hate. Of just, there, there was no uh, loving one another, liking one another. Samaritans were the pariahs of Jewish society. They were blights. If you really wanted to insult someone, you called them a Samaritan. You Samaritan. How dare you, my good sir? In the book of, I say this because in the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus says something that upsets everybody. And do you know what they say? The people retorted, you Samaritan devil. Didn't we say all along you were possessed by a demon? They were so mad at Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. So that was like a big diss. That was the ultimate diss. If you were to tell a Jewish person, I'm going to tell you a story of a good Samaritan, they'd be like, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't even make sense. That, that, that. The only good Samaritan is maybe a dead Samaritan. That's, that, they, they just could not put it together. So the most depraved thing, creature you can think of, comes down the path and he sees this broken and dying man and he has compassion on him. Not just sympathy, but compassion. You see, sympathy says, I see you and I have the capacity to understand and feel for what you're going through, but compassion is the willingness to actually relieve the suffering of another. And he sees him, and he's moved beyond just sympathy to compassion, to relieve his suffering. Um, and, and he doesn't go into the, I wonder what he did to get him into this situation, himself into this situation. You see, I am a person that's like that. I see someone that's in a situation, and my tendency is to go to blame them for the reason they're there. I wonder what you did to get yourself into this mess. I guess you made those choices yourself, or you're going to have to deal with those consequences. Should have been traveling with a group, I guess. Should have maybe had a little caravan, a buddy, a sword, I don't know. 
How many of us look at someone that's going through something in their life and go, should have managed your money better. I saw the car you were driving. Should have done this different. Oh, you're in this situation? I've seen the way you've been going, doing this and that. We blame people for their situations they're in. We, we, we elevate ourselves from having to step in because that's a situation they introduce themselves into. The Samaritan, though, he saw this man where he was at. He had compassion for him. And then he moved and he met the need. He met the need. First of all, he gave him his resources. He poured out oil and wine. Oil and wine were considered an antiseptic. They, they soothed his wounds. The man's clothes were gone. The guy was naked. And so he took his own clothes, most likely, or whatever cloth he had, which probably was what he was wearing, tore it and made bandages for him to stop the bleeding. He put the man on his own donkey, which means he himself would have to walk the rest of the way. Or whatever goods he had on the donkey, he had to carry. Something had to give on what was on the donkey. He gave of his time. I don't think that he planned on this event happening in the course of his days. Like, well, I'll head down to Jericho, probably see a half-dead guy, deal with that. This was something that they inserted itself into his day he was not planning on. How many of us have ever gotten a phone call in the middle of your day, and it's plenty busy by itself, thank you, and it was not what you were planning on? It changed his time. And he gave his finances. He paid for the stay at the inn. Um, As I was studying, I read that archaeologists have uncovered inns, uh, Roman inns, roadside, not in this particular area, but roadside ones that list how many denarii it is to stay the night there. They like to carve things into rock, which helps it last a long time. And uh, the price point for staying one night in a Roman inn is about one thirty-second of a denarii. He paid the innkeeper two denarii, which means that man could have stayed in that inn for two months. That was lavish. That was a lot. And he said, then whatever else is needed for his care, for his time, I'll pay it. When I come back through, I'll pay it. And that's the other thing. He followed up. He said, I'm going to come by and see it through. I'm going to see it through. He didn't just drop him at the front doors of the emergency room, kick him out the door, you know. Oh, man. He said, I'm going to see it through for your full healing and restoration. And, 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 and so this is the story Jesus tells to give context. But then he returns the volley with a fourth question. Back to this teacher of the law. Here's what he says. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So Jesus asks, which one would you say is the neighbor in this circumstance? And the man, I find it interesting, can't even respond with his title, the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. You know the one. I'm, you, know, you know the one. Can't even say Samaritan, we're call, call him by his title. And, and, and it's not the one who just saw him. It's not just the one who saw him and felt sympathy for him, but the one who acted with compassion and mercy. And this is the point in the story where the parable becomes a problem. It turns from just being do nice things for other people to a problem. It turns from just do nice things for people you don't like into a problem. Because it's not just a st- uh, it, it, what we would expect from this story, and probably what the teacher of the law would ex- have expected, is a parable telling about how much a Jew should show love to anybody, even a Samaritan. 
The way the story should have been structured was a good teacher of the law was going down the road and there was a wounded Samaritan and he cared for him. He is your neighbor. That would be how it would be constructed in his mind and how I would understand it. Perhaps the victim of the mugging is a Samaritan, but in fact, Jesus shows us that even a Samaritan in this story may be nearer to the kingdom of God than a pious, professional, religious person. He said the most sinful, disgusting person you can think of may be closer to the kingdom of God than the most religiously correct person, the person that follows all the rules that you think you've got figured out. You see, the, oh, it's so important. The parables were not morality tales. They weren't Jesus' version of Aesop's fables. The, the parables were all tied to salvation. They were contextualizing, understanding the kingdom of God and how you get into the kingdom of God. What was the very first question that was opened up to start this whole dialogue? What was the very first question that this teacher of the law asked? He said, how does someone get eternal life? How can I get eternal life? Not how can I be nice to people or what people should I be nice to. And Jesus takes the question uh, of defining, well, then who is my neighbor? And he turns it into asking, am I the person that God wants me to be? Am I failing the litmus test? Am I trying to earn eternal salvation by being committed to the rules and the laws and so much that I am neglecting the broken and the dying and the hurting and those that are my world around me, but I am so locked into being the perfect Christian person that I'm missing the whole call. You can tell how someone loves God by how they love people. That's why the greatest commandment is tied together like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you think you're doing that, how are you loving people? And so Jesus is very intentional with making the Samaritan the hero of this story because the Samaritan is closer to the kingdom of God than the most religiously pious. But when we have a change and transformation of who we are, it changes our priorities from just getting all the rules right, doing all the steps right to try to impress God, and suddenly our vision changes. There's a, an old uh, nursery rhyme from England about a cat that goes to England to see the queen. And uh, in this story, it goes on this trip, and when it returns, they ask, what did you see? And the cat responds, I saw a mouse under a chair. The cat knows where it's going. It's going to London. It's going to go across London Bridge. And it's going to go to this, you know, this extravagant palace. And it's going to see the queen and all of her regalia. And all of that's there. But what is the one thing the cat sees? A mouse under a chair. Why? Because it's the nature of a cat to see a mouse. We see what our nature directs our eyes to. So the question is, how do we know that we're living truly transformed lives? And how do we know that we're holding on to the eternal life that that teacher of the law was wondering about? Our nature has changed. Our nature has changed. What you see changes from the inconvenience. What you see changes from the cost. What you see changes from the investment to seeing things through the eyes of our Father. And so we can... For me, this was convicting because I have moved through my last week by the incon- looking at things that say that would be an inconvenience to go deal with that. I measure things by what the cost uh, return benefit is going to be for me. 
But when we live life through the eyes of the Father as transformed people, we no longer look at the mouse. We're looking at the bigger picture. We're looking at things through the eyes of the Father. It redefines not who our neighbor is, but he says, I don't want to redefine who your neighbor is. I want to redefine you. I want to redefine you. Let's not talk about who's this and who I should love and this person or that person. Should I love them because of their sin? Let's talk about you. Let's redefine you and see how you love people. And this is done first and foremost by responding to God's love. The only way we can do this is by responding to God's love. The Bible is clear. We're not initiators of, of love to God. We're not the ones that came up with the great idea. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our transgressions. And I'll tell you that dead things have a hard time loving stuff. We were, we were dead and gone in our transgressions. But in the book of 1 John chapter 4, it says that, that he, we love him because he first loved us. That love came down and it found us and it drew us out of our death and our lost state. And it brings life into us so we can respond then. We have the choice to respond to that love. To the love that's been given to us. The love that calls us out. So the first thing we have the opportunity to do is respond to that love. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes this morning, church? I want to give you the opportunity to respond to the love of the Father. Kind of like this man that was half dead on the side of the road, we could do nothing for ourselves, but Jesus came along. And when we could do nothing in return, he lifted us up, raised us up, and gives us life. But we have to receive that gift of life. It's about receiving that gift of life. And maybe you're in this room and kind of like that guy that's been professionally a good person. You have tried everything in your power to be a good person. But let me tell you, you'll always let yourself down. We will always come up short. We will sin. We will fall. We will fail. Our goodness will not burn us the kingdom of God. Every one of us has sinned, the book of Romans tells us. We've fallen short of God's glory. It's brought us death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. So right now, that gift is available to you. And like any gift, it's only yours if you receive. Say, Jesus, I want to receive your life and me. The goodness that I'm not able to produce on my own, I need you to give me your life. So right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you say, Pastor Brent, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to surrender it to him. I need to, to, to say, no longer am I going to live for myself, but Lord, I need to make you my Lord and Savior. So if this is your first time to give him your, your heart and your soul, or maybe it's been a long time since you've uh, done it and you know you've been living your life on your own terms, and right now you say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, I want to pray with you right now. Will you raise your hand and raise it high? Raise it high. Yeah, thank you. I see that hand. Anybody else joining? Thank you. Raise your hand. Thank you. Church, right now, I want us to pray together to res- respond to the love of God, to respond to the love of Jesus that found us while we were still dead, while we were still trying to do things on our own. We, we, we brought us no life. His love brings us life. So right now, we're going to pray this prayer out loud with conviction as a full church body, all right? Pray this with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe you came for me. I believe 
that you are the Son of God and died for me and rose again and you offer me life. So I surrender to you. I give you my heart. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. I choose to follow you and make you my king and my Lord from this day forward. In your name. Amen. 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 The second step is this, is we need to live out our lives as transformed people by loving people how God loves people. This was the crux of what Jesus was talking about. Not who is my neighbor, but who am I as a transformed person living under this new kingdom that he has brought? Am I loving people like this? I want to be closer to the kingdom like that Samaritan was than by the person that had all the rules figured out and all exactly right and knew all the right answers. So rather than being people that have all the right answers, and let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with having good theology. We should. We should be wise. We should be, we should be studying the word. But let me tell you, if we're not living it out, we're falling short. Let's live it out. Let's live it out this week. Amen, church? All right. Father, I pray for this church this week as we go. That we really would be Samaritans and that we seek out the lost, the hurt, the dying. That we would go out of our way. That we would set down the conveniences that we like to hold on to. Our time, our resources, um, all the things, Lord. Even seeing things all the way through. Not just helping people get to a point of help, but ourselves walking with them. Showing them the love of Christ. That we would live with the eyes of God, our Father, Lord. The eyes of Christ, seeing people as you see them. Loving them deeply as you love them. We thank you, Jesus, that you are going to work through this community of believers this week in amazing and profound ways. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. New Life Church, God bless you. Have a wonderful and blessed week.